0: Thank you uh, thank you steve and mick for the opportunity to come and preach god's word it's always good talking the word of god as steve said i have the privilege of leading the yeovil church but you can tell by my accent i'm not from somerset i'm from uh, east manchester um the accent in somerset is quite different we were in pool for 11 years and as they say to air is human to is somerset so there you go. <laughs> But yeah, I'm from the east end of Manchester. But my wife, when we were in our youth group, she's from the west end of Manchester. She was a bit of posh totty when she came in, age 14 and 15. It's like nothing's changed, you know. So east end boy, west end girl. You know, we're a bit like posh and becks in that way. Uh, so. Except I can't play football. I haven't got any tattoos. We haven't got any money, and I suppose that's where the similarity ends. But other than that, when you see posh and becks, think of us. <laughs> Uh, praise God. Well, I want to speak to you this morning about the good life. I've been preaching and teaching through James in our church, and I have, honestly, I mean, been a church leader for nearly about 19 years or something. That's a racket. I was certainly in church ministry for 19 years and leading the church in New York for nearly eight. I've never interacted with a, a book so personally, the Bible I've been preaching through, <clears throat> where it's, it's had such an impact on me. I really encourage you to get into the book of James and to really unpack it and read it because it's so full. It's so rich of things. And I find myself God going, you need to deal with that before you can preach. And I'm like, yeah. Oh, ah, yeah. So it's been a <clears throat> it's been a real good journey. I've not finished yet. I've not preached this word in Yeovil. I believe that as I was waiting on God. I believe that God wanted me to bring this to you. So I'm going to preach here from James chapter four, loosely called, if you're going to give it a title, The Good Life. But i ask a question this morning. Who wants to be blessed? Anyone? Yeah. yeah, that's good, isn't it? Yeah. Jesus talks a lot about blessings in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? But what does it mean to be blessed? Well, some translations just translate it as happy. happier. are those. Actually, that's quite a weak translation. It's, it's a very loose connotation, but it's a poor translation. Uh, the word that Jesus uses is a Greek word called makarios, which literally means fortunate, well-off. Now, sometimes somebody can be writing or, or teaching something or speaking, and they, they don't intend the very literal meaning of the word to be what they convey. So while it does mean to be fortunate well off, D.A. Carson, one of my favorite commentators, says, blessed in this context means to be approved of by God. And I'm thinking, well, if you are approved of by God, you are well and truly fortunate, well off, happy, indeed joyful, aren't you? Now, James, in his whole letter, is greatly influenced by the Sermon on the Mount. He references it a lot. And he applies it to the churches that he's writing to. He's writing a general letter to a number of churches. We don't know how many, but over a broad area. And that's what he's writing to, these, these kind of guys. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to the theatre. Uh, Sue and I took our daughter and our other two kids up to um, uh, what's it called London to see uh, The Lion King at the Lyceum. And um, it was quite good, if, if you like that kind of thing, it was quite good. And they had this. And this the theatre was set out in such a way, there was this kind of big, kind of, sort of orangey, kind of African-coloured kind of backdrop set in. And all the action took place in front of this big backdrop. You know, things came up through the floor and things came up from the side and out the side. It was pretty cool. But really, it all took place against kind of this big African scene, this very sort of general scene. And in some ways, if you can think of the Sermon of the Mount being kind of the backdrop, to James's letter, it'll give you a pretty good flavour for it. So, as I say, we're going to look at the first ten verses of chapter four. But we need to understand really that's half uh, a discourse. Actually, there's a bit more to it. It's actually more than half. But there's a little bit more to it, which is takes place in James chapter three, from thirteen to eighteen. Now, because of time, we're not going to read that. But I'm just going to give you a, a quick summary, and it's this. The, really, the heart of that passage is summed up in the first verse, which is this: If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by a godly life. That pretty much sums up the passage. Paraphrasing the next few verses, I'll give it a caveat. It says, if you have jealousy, selfish ambition, self-righteous boasting, in other words, to cover up your hypocrisy, you do not have godly wisdom. However, godly wisdom in action is to be peacemakers who reap a harvest of righteousness. So you can see instantly a link to the Sermon on the Mount. So let's read these verses. Now, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. My preferred version is the ESV, but that's very literal. And this, the NLT gives a really good kind of picture. Uh, it elaborates better, I think, this passage. It makes it easier to understand. But we will touch on the NIV and the ESV as we go through. So let's read the first 10 verses. James says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want and you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. You adulterers. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So, humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and he will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom is said of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honour. I want to look at the next ten verses under three headings, which are the diagnosis, the hope, and the cure. But I want to ask first, who is James? How does he have the authority to say such blunt, bold, harsh things to us? What gives him the right to say that? What do we know about him? Well, actually, we know that James was known as Old Camel Knees. This is absolutely true. I've not made this up. It's in Frank Morrison's book, Who Moved the Stone? Allegedly, that was his nickname amongst the disciples. Why? Because he spent hours and hours and hours on his knees praying, and so much so his knees were quite well calloused. That's what we know about him. He was also known as James the Just. Almost sounds like a character from Narnia, doesn't it? But clearly, he was a man who was very fair, very just and right. He was very fair and equitable. And obviously we know that he was the Lord's biological half-brother. We've got references to James outside of the Bible. Uh, Josephus, who was not a Christian, writes about uh, James, who was uh, also referred to as him whose name was Christ, so regarded to be the Christ. And Eusebius, uh, one of the early church fathers, and a guy called Hegesippus, What a great name that is, isn't it? Nobody calls the kids Eggy Sippers nowadays. I think really should. But he was an early church chronicler. They all refer to James as being the Lord's brother or the brother of he who is called the Christ. So we know this about James. We know this, that he grew up with Jesus and he probably knew Jesus better than most people. Jesus was his older brother. And consequently, he saw a life full of love, holiness, purity and grace every day. A God-pleasing life. Now, on one level, it must have been really hard for Jesus to be your older brother, wouldn't it? You can imagine Mary and Joseph saying to the kids, why can't you be more like Jesus? Why can't you do this? He's never in trouble. Why are you like Jesus? You can imagine that. It can be pretty hard, that, wouldn't it? Let's be honest. But on a more serious level, he would have seen Jesus every day, even as a, you know, as a teenager, maybe, when, Joseph, uh, sorry, when um, James was a child. And he saw how Jesus lived perfectly, he was full of grace. He was never smug, no. <laughs> when the other kids got told off. He was absolutely loving and gracious and perfect and pure. And if that had been me, I'd have been thinking, I stand out like a sore thumb. I'd have been more aware of my sin, having grown up next to absolutely perfect Jesus. So he fully understood what grace, purity, godliness, what a God-pleasing life really looked like, how to do it. He had the benchmarks at high. So let's have a look at these 10 verses. We're going to go through verse by verse, but not in too great depth. The diagnosis. First of all, I want you to think about this concept as well, cause and effect. These 10 verses are absolutely chocker with cause and effect. If you do this, this happens. If this doesn't happen, this will happen. You can see the results. So he said straight away, what is causing the quarrel and, quarrels and fights? He says is, not what could, what may, what has. So he's obviously aware of some kind of situation amongst the churches he's writing to, that the churches are struggling with quarrels and fights in the present tense, if you like, continuous sense. We also see the fact that he's very specific, the quarrels and fights. He knows this is going on. He's not just picking things out of the air and thinking, I wonder if they're struggling with this. I'll write about that. He gives the answer. What's causing him? Evil desires, literally pleasures or passions. The, the King James translates it as lusts at war within your members. Now, Nowadays, we tend to just think of lusts as being a sexual thing, don't we? But actually, it doesn't. It actually means an unhealthy or unwholesome desire for something you should not have. And members, he isn't talking about church members. He's talking about, literally, the Greek word is limbs, body parts. So, as he's saying, within your actual bodies, your physical fleshly bodies, within your minds, within your flesh, these evil desires, passions and pleasures, striving and at war, craving after things. And consequently, they're producing quarrels and arguments and fights. He says in verse 2 in the ESV, you desire and you do not have, so you murder You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You know, he says that you set your heart on, you long for, but you don't get what you want, so you murder. Most commentators don't believe he's talking in a literal sense. He's using a metaphor. Two commentators do. But he's talking about, he says you're going after people in a bad way. You're killing each other. You're destroying each other. You're at war with each other. He goes on to say you covet, you're jealous for, your heart desires it, and you cannot obtain it, so you go to war, so you're attacking each other, you're backbiting, you're undermining these factions and cliques going on, and power struggles, and strong emotions going on, and he's describing the church here, and then he says, you do not have, because you do not ask, a very clear example, cause and effect, you don't ask, because you don't don't get it, because you're not asking God, you know, if you're going to live a life that is dabbling in sin as a Christian. If you're going to, you know, really live this double life or just give yourself to sin or just indulge sins a little bit, it'll kill your prayer life. It will absolutely kill your prayer life. You will not want to get up in the morning or have your quiet time in the evening, whenever you do it, and have time with God and come in before God because you know that you're engaged in the living in a way that's just not God-honoring and not pleasing. And actually, it's it's miserable to be like that. James goes on, verse 3, says this, "'You ask.'" And do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, or King James to consume on your lusts. And I say that's not just a sexual thing; it's desiring something that you shouldn't have. You know, James is writing to the churches, isn't it? But he could be describing the world. You know, sometimes you watch TV or you watch a. I'm not really into. A, I can't stand reality TV. To be honest with I watch TV. I watch good film to escape reality. That's my kind of entertainment. But you sometimes you see things, don't you? Chat shows or interviews, or you read something in the paper, and people are just being plain nasty about each other. Backbiting. There's this campaign or this politics, particularly. I like politics; I find it quite engaging. But you see the, the the warring and the factions going on. James is writing to churches, and yet, really, it could be describing the world the way it is. You know, there is another cause and effect here, which is this: there's a price to pay because sin spawns sorrow. People living this way are not happy. Christians who live this way, who are trying to live one foot in the world and one foot in the church, if you like, living for Christ, you're neither one nor the other. And consequently, it's miserable. I've been there. I was like that for a few years in my late teens before, by the grace of God, he drew me back. But it's miserable. It's not content. It's not happy. It's certainly not blessed in the context that Jesus is talking about. He goes on to say this. We read in the NLT, it says, you adulterers, male and singular. But the Greek actually says, you adulteresses, feminine and plural. So is he? Is James just targeting the women and saying this is all the women's fault and the women are sexually immoral? No, categorically not. What he's doing, James, we believe, apparently was trained to be a priest, a Jewish Hebrew priest. So he knew the Old Testament very, very well. And if you, you can see that very clearly through the book of James. Now, he's using Old Testament covenant language where God talks about his people being unfaithful to him. You're in a covenant with me, yet you give yourselves to idolatry and to sin. You, you betray me like an adulteress. He's using Old Testament covenant language. Now, Paul talks about the church as being the bride of Christ, doesn't he? And yet, truthfully, James is describing the bride of Christ flirting or committing adultery with Satan. When you say it like that, I think... That is horrific, isn't it? It's horrible. We don't think it, but that's exactly what James is saying. He's he's, he's saying it really clearly. and I find that quite scary. He goes on to say this. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Again, James is right to Christians. How is it that Christians can be an enemy of God? It's because we move from being in a place of being a right relationship with him to living and practicing and doing things that actually put us in direct opposition to God. God said, I am the Lord, I change not. His purity and holiness is never contemporized. It's never changed to fit the modern culture. Well, the way we communicate it might be, but his truths and value do not change. God, in that context, is immutable. Consequently, we find ourselves at war. We find ourselves at war. But what do we mean by friendship with the world? You know, so I was brought up in a strong in a good, strong, staunch Pentecostal church, which really was very legalistic. I literally did not experience grace until the year 2000 when God brought me into New Frontiers in 1999 and God hit me with grace. Now, I knew about grace, but I had never experienced grace and boy, was I like a scratch record. I mean, my wife was probably sick to death of hearing me talk, preach, sing about grace. I was like, I experienced grace for the first time every time I opened the even in the Old Testament. I was seeing grace, grace, grace. Like it was absolutely well, it was life changing for me. Utterly life changing. It was incredible. I thank God for for His grace. But I was brought up in a church background where you don't make friends with non-Christians. Oh, no. You know, keep yourself separate. And we're having some dealing with the brethren, and they are lovely people, the exclusive brethren. But they really put the capital E on exclusive. They really do keep separate. They're lovely, godly people, but they just keep totally separate. But that's not what James is not saying. Don't have non-Christian friends. In fact, church said, encourage you, have more Christian friends and make genuine friendships. And in the context of our faith, the context of that friendship Share your faith as and when appropriate, as God opens the doors. Pray for God to do that. So James isn't saying don't have non-Christian friends. Friendship in this context means fondness of values. In other words, if you are fond of the world's values, if you embrace the world's values, if you say, yeah, yeah, I align with that, Yeah, yeah, I want to embrace that and bring that in, you make yourself as a Christian an enemy of God. You make yourself an enemy of God because the world's values are not God's values. They literally come from Satan but you do it yourself. That's the danger. We've got to be careful that we don't put ourselves in a place of opposition to God unwittingly. And the other thing I notice about this is when Christians and churches embrace modern values and yes, we're going to be more contemporary. And I'm obviously talking to some context about the whole same-sex marriage and same-sex attraction and that kind of thing and the LGBTQ movement. I saw a, a video recently that one of our guys on Alpha uh, shared a video on Facebook with us. And it was this A foul-mouthed pastor in America, to be honest with you, I won't tell you exactly what he said, But he was saying, oh yeah, Jesus was a rebel, Jesus was cool, Jesus kicked against he spent time with the tax collectors and prostitutes. Yes, he did. He didn't endorse their way of lifestyle. He says, so consequently, we've got we've got to uh, totally celebrate gay love and same sex marriage. We've got to embrace it and bring it all in. Yeah, because that's what Jesus says, what Jesus said. That's a complete misunderstanding of scripture and a complete misunderstanding of the heart of God. And actually, that guy sadly has put himself in a position of an enemy of God. I'm not saying he's lost his salvation, I'm not saying that at all. But he's put himself in a position that's not right. And he's unbiblical and ungodly. That's, that's a worldly value, which unfortunately creeps in and it changes our thinking. We've got to be very careful that we love the world and that we make genuine friends with those people. But we don't adapt our standards, our values to come into that. We are Christians, Christians, disciples of Christ. The reality is, if you were a Christian, you were at war. You know, God really spoke to me about being at war recently. And I got up one, well, about two or three Sundays ago, and I had my quiet time and said, God, from this day on, I'm, I'm at war. I became aware of a pastoral situation close to us, and I thought, somebody struggling with their faith thought, I'm not having that. I am going to war for this person. And every single day I'm praying for this person. I'm going to war against sin in my own life. I'm going to war against false teaching. I'm going to war against the things that are just not right, the hypocrisy and the ungodliness in my own life. But, church, we are at war. We need to recognize it. And kingdom values will always be at war with worldly values. They will never match. They're like, oh, well, never mind. We've got to be tolerant. You know, love takes all forms. All forms of love is good. No, it's not. That's not true. God is love, but God is pure. i ask us a question or four questions this morning. What influences our values? You know, what feeds our minds? Are we feeding our spirit or our lusts? What stuff's going into our hearts, our minds? Because what you watch and what you listen to and what you sing in your CD collection on the radio will influence us. The other thing is we make the choice to be fond of the world or to love God's law like David and Jesus. Now, you might have heard that old expression, so heavenly minded, no earthly use. I think it's an oxymoron, it's a contradiction in terms. You know, David used to sing, Lord, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. I wish I could genuinely say that. David was not a boring guy to be around. He was not a boring guy. He was a pioneer. He was a warrior. He had a group of guys who rallied to him because they saw something of God in him. They loved his heart and his attitude. He was gentle, he was caring. And yet this was a man's man, a good man. They were called David's mighty men. They were willing to give their life for him. Do you think hanging out with Jesus was boring? No, absolutely not. Jesus was full of life and joy and gentle and compassionate, yet firm in other ways. Jesus, the perfect man, humanity as God intended us to be. Hanging out with Jesus, who totally loved and modeled and worked out God's law on a day-to-day basis in every situation and aspect of his life, was not boring. Yeah, sometimes we pick up the message to be really like, we're really boring. You can't relate to people. Jesus related to tax collectors, prostitutes, a woman caught in adultery, Pharisees who are hypocritical. There was no one that Jesus couldn't relate to. He was totally not boring. You know, James, in this passage, I want to so the question, do we compromise? Do we keep quiet sometimes and sell out? You know, the other thing which is really scary, and I, I know this. Really carefully because I've had conversations with people. You know, if people begin to dabble with sin, Christians begin to dabble with sin. I talked to some people. I did a series on biblical marriage in the church a couple of years ago, a preaching series, and I wanted to talk to people I knew. And one of them was a good friend of mine who committed adultery, physically committed adultery, not just in his heart and his mind. And I said to him, "How did you get to that stage? How did you get from being a really godly man?" To fouling up like that. Praise God, he repented, got right, and he's serving God faithfully. I thank God for that. For that, but he said, "Well, basically, it's vanity, it's pride. It creeps in begins to change." And I've talked to others, and what you find is, as you dabble in this sin, you begin to think things that you wouldn't previously have thought, and actually, your thought processes change. So, when I was in my early twenties, we had a youth leader in our church who'd grown up, come through the church, he'd gone to Bible college, he became a pastor, he was leading a, a church over in uh, Yorkshire. A very godly man, really good upbringing and really knew the Lord, brought up in a really God-fearing church. And he eventually ended up having an affair with a woman in his church. And when he was confronted, because these things always come out, he said, but I love her. What's the problem? I love her. Well, you're married and you've got three kids and you're a pastor of a church. Yeah, yeah, but I love her. Sure, we can be together and keep serving the church. Seriously? I mean, we stand there and go, come on, don't be daft. But seriously, what had happened was sin had con- What's with it? I'm like, uh, changed his thinking, uh, damaged his thinking so that he couldn't think the right thoughts. God talks in Romans 1 that God gave, God gave them, Paul talks in Romans 1 rather, that God gave them over to the sin so that they couldn't, they just wanted to do that and began to think corrupt thoughts. I think, I find myself scared by this because truthfully, and particularly as I was doing that series, I'm thinking, you can't afford to fool around with sin because it corrupts your thinking. You find yourself thinking things that you would never normally think. The old saying goes that you end up paying more than you wanted to and staying longer than you wanted to. James really does lift the lid on sin. He lifts the lid up and I'm like, oh, my goodness. You look at that, look at my thinking, Lord, what a mess. But he doesn't stop there. If we were to stop here, this would be a depressing message, wouldn't it? It'd be like, oh, great. Yeah, let's just go home and just let's whip ourselves and get the horsehair shirts out, you know, because it's just this is just total misery. But James points to God's mercy and grace, which gives us hope. So we see in verse 5, the second section we call the hope. That's a difficult verse to translate. But basically, the gist of it is this. God is jealous for the spiritual life he put in our heart. And he won't give up. You know, God loves us and he's faithful to us. And he wants the same from us in return. If you're a Christian, imagine that you're married to Christ. Your husband demands faithfulness from you as you would demand faithfulness from your spouse. You know, it's incredible how God speaks to us to this, through this. It really is. He does not give up. What does he mean that God put his spirit in us? Well, again, there's lots of complicated ideas, but I'll tell you this. In Genesis 2, we read that the God formed the man from the dust of the earth. And then he says, he breathed his breath into his nostrils. Now, I've got quite a vivid imagination. I'm quite a literal imagination kind of guy. And I imagine God creating Adam, whether he just spoke and he came into being from the dust or whether he hadn't made him, what, I don't know. But I imagine this very kind of personal interaction where God forms Adam and he's lying on the ground absolutely perfect, but dead as a door now. He's never breathed a single breath. He's never thought a single thought. And God says, right, come on, let's breathe our breath in. The Hebrew word for breath is the same word for spirit, ruach. And imagine—I this is my imagination. Imagine Jesus getting down on his knees next to, to Adam, getting up really close and breathing the breath, the spirit, the life of God into Adam. And Adam going, opening his eyes. And the first thing he would have seen was Jesus. Now imagine that. It's one of the things that I don't believe in evolution at all. But I believe that just the whole theology points to the intimacy, the, the involvement of God within. Now, if I was to blow up your nose, I'd have to come close to do it. I believe that God got really close to him and he breathed life into him. God is jealous for that life. God is not just going, to, oh, well, he's just going off the rails. Never mind. Creation's going down the pan. Don't worry about it. God loves us. God loves the world so much he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It shows to me great mercy, great love, great intimacy that God loves you. Even if you hate him today, God loves you. If you love him today, you love him because he loved you, because he's jealous for that life, that creation, that image of God, because male and female, were creating God's image. We carry the same characteristics as God. God loves us deeply, passionately. So James points to grace. He says this as well. Whoops, I've gone go to there. Um, oh, no, verse 6, that's right. Here we go. He says he gives grace generously. It's not stintingly. He doesn't measure it out by the teaspoon. He pours out grace. He lavishes his grace upon us. But God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. One of the commentaries I've been reading, which is a real blessing, if you want to get a commentary to read James, get The Bible Speaks Today by Alec Mattia. He's got this little quote I want to read to you. I've just modernized the language a little bit, but this is this blessed me. Even if we consistently let him down, he gives more grace. Even if we turn to him and say, I have not received anywhere near enough grace. He would reply, well, you may have more. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. I want to go, yes! Boy, do I need it. Thank you, God. I thought, yes. I was reading that on Friday. I was so excited. Yes, God gives more grace for my foul-ups. Now, that's not a liberty to go off and just be an idiot and do stupid things. Paul talks about that. We're not going to get into that. But even though we foul and say, oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God's grace is sufficient. Sufficient, rather, and efficient. Yeah, definitely. You know, the truth is this. As we humble ourselves to obey God, he gives enabling grace. We don't stand there and say, well, God, go on then. I suppose you better give me some grace. So, oh, God, I foul up again. And the father goes, yeah, no, don't worry. Here's some grace. Be forgiven. We're touching that. So we have hope. God's grace is generous. It never runs out. What is the cure? The cure is verse 7. So, notice when you read Scripture, words like so, therefore. They, they are connecting what has gone before. It's a continuation of thought. It's a continuation of a theme. It's not a new subject. So, in the light of what's gone before, humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. When I was first reading I was thinking... Why would you put those two subjects back to back? They kind of like seem different things, don't they, really? Well, humble literally means to subordinate yourself and obey like a soldier. And resist in this context means to stand against and to to defend, not to attack. We repel the invader and he runs. But notice this, we've got to humble ourselves first before we can resist. So let me ask you a question. And this is let's be interactive now what would you say is the best film ever shown at Christmas so you're not allowed to answer this go on you can say something there now. best film ever shown at Christmas on TV Home Alone say again how to Amy Dragon say again Scrooge no you're all wrong it's this film anyone know what this film is Zulu. I love that film absolutely love that film in fact, guys, I would like to encourage, as part of your exposition of James... No, no, it's a great film. Go home and watch this film. It's you can buy it for 50p in a secondhand shop. I, I did a couple of years ago. Every now and again, I get to watch it on my own because Sue and the kids will not go near this film. But this film, this particularly this fighting scene, definitely, perfectly demonstrates, humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. These soldiers had to subordinate themselves to the commanding officer's attack, uh, instructions, as the attack was coming, they were told to line up. And these guys—this is the Black Watch—they invented this. I can't remember the name of it. So something like the cannon or something. But they invented this two-row thing where one row would stand and fire while the row in front of them reloaded, and then they would crouch down. The other row would stand up and fire, and they they worked this kind of thing. And consequently, as literally the swathes of Zulu warriors, very brave guys, rolled in and rolled in and rolled in, They they would just cut them down, cut them down, cut them down, cut them down. And in the end, they ran from the British troops. So consequently, a small minority greatly defended themselves against a massed, a mass Zulu army. This perfectly, perfectly explains it. Now, as we humble ourselves before God and recognize that our authority comes from him, our power comes from him, our righteousness and virtue and grace comes from him. But we just stand firm. We humble ourselves before God and we stand firm. It's interesting, Paul says in Ephesians 6, doesn't it? It's about putting the full armor of God. Stand, therefore, and in the end, having done all to stand. You know, we don't have to run into the devil's camp like Rambo or Arnie, you know, with a big machine gun and oozy the devil. We don't have to do it. And he'll keep coming, but we stand and we resist him. And as we stand firm with the full armor of God and he comes bound, he, he can't cope it. He can't cope with us. He runs away. Oh, to be a church. You remember screwtake Letters? Oh, to be a church where the devil would say to his younger apprentices, well, oh, stay away from Weymouth Family Church. Well, oh, they give you a kick in. You can't get in there. Just go and bug somebody else. Go and bother somebody else. I tell you, this is what God calls us to do. But if we compromise with sin, we cannot resist and we will be overcome. There's no half measures with it. Verse 8, cause and effect again. Come close to God and he will come close to you. What an incredible promise. If you draw close to God, he will come close to you. You know, one of the things that hit me most about grace when I read the prodigal story of the prodigal son was that as the, the son comes back, stinking of pigs, hungry, absolutely wretched and filthy. The father runs to him, wraps his arms around him. The father ran to him. I tell you, you come close to God, God will come close to you. You draw near to God, you might sort of come slowly towards God. I get God runs to you, wraps his arms around you. Son, daughter, good to have you back. What can we do? How are you? I tell you, God loves us. What a great promise. We're called to wash and purify ourselves. Now, it's God that does the cleansing, but really it's like David in Psalm 51, in me a clean heart, oh God, Renew in me a right spirit. Have mercy upon me, according to your tender love, your loving kindness. We come to God. I'll tell you, this is another thing I think we've lost in the Western church to some degree. We need to know whose side we're on. There's an old thing as, as, a, as a kid we sing sing Sunday school, I'm, I'm in the Lord's army. Do you remember that one? Yeah, some of you as old as me. Yeah, it was great. But we're in the Lord's army. We're on his side. And we need to live in such ways to prove that we are Satan's unyielding opponent. We don't play football with Satan on Christmas Day in no man's land. We don't you know, have a parlance to talk about a truce. We're enemies. We're sworn enemies. And even if you don't know it, he does. And he will always treat you like an enemy. Therefore, you need to be wise and have your eyes open and live for Christ. It's the only way you'll overcome the enemy. And I tell you this, a Victorian Christian life starts, to, sorry, a Victorian Christian life which where Satan flees from you starts on your knees before God. Now, you may not have to physically kneel, but it's, this, it's kneeling in your heart, having this time before God. Getting to know him, know his word. You know, if you don't know the word of God, when people come up with heresy and false teaching, you can't discern it. You can't pull it apart. You can't go, oh, that's not right. You might think, oh, that feels wrong, but you need to know the word of God so you can stand against it. Verse nine in the IV says this, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. What a depressing verse. But actually, as we draw close to God, we become more aware of our sin. We're more aware of our sin. We're like, oh, God, I'm not right. I need to get right. And I tell you, genuine repentance includes mourning. It's not coming to God and going, "Oops, my bad. Oh, sorry, Lord. You know, and God's going, oh, you naughty boy. Go on, off you go. That's not mourning. That's not repentance. That's not having a right attitude before God. You know, I love that parable that Jesus tells about the Pharisee. And the tax collector and the Pharisee stands there in his robes and his his, his public acclaim, says, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. And he's pompous. He's arrogant. And the Pharisee, the tax collector, rather, the man who's betraying his own nation by collecting taxes for the opponent, the, the opposing, the enemy, the Romans, is on his knees before God, beating his chest and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said one man went home justified that day wasn't the pharisee i tell you genuine repentance will make us mourn for our sin god i'm so sorry and we think of what sin cost jesus how jesus had to deal with it how he had to bear the full oh how he chose to bear the full weight of god's wrath against sin it's not cool to sin you know sometimes you hear people talking about sin as though it's a bit like that old cream cake advert naughty but nice no Sin is filthy. Sin brings death. Sin corrupts. It destroys. It damages. It undermines. There's nothing good about sin. There's no redeeming qualities about sin. And church, we've got to make sure that we are the holy people of God. We represent Christ in the world. We are Christ's ambassadors. We've got to be sure that we're right before God. You know, he says that in verse 10, the final verse, New Living Translation, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Literally, to subordinate yourself, abase yourself, submit yourself to God, renounce pride, lower your heart, recognize that he is God and I am not. You know, we live in a world where individuals live as though they're gods unto themselves. It's what I want. It's my needs. It's my rights. It's my expression of of myself and it's totally selfish, self-centered little gods and idols. It's terrible i consequently, you see people, you know, making idols of something else or someone else. Jewish, that's not for us. We need to subordinate ourselves. We take orders from our commanding officer as soldiers of the king, male and female, young and old. We lower our heart. And we recognize that he is God. But I've crossed out in honor. Why would I cross that out? We think God does not honor us. No, I'm not saying that. But in the Greek... And the ESV and the NIV don't have in honor. It just says he will lift you up. But What I love about the NLT, and this is why I would commend it to you as, as a book worth, as a version worth reading, is it adds sometimes an extra word or extra phrase to kind of paint in this picture. It's kind of a halfway house between the message and a normal Bible, if you like. You know, it adds this few extra words to illustrate something. Now, the reality is that when we humble ourselves before God, it is an honor. It is an honor. To be lifted up by God is an honor, a blessing, a token of love, his undeserved kindness, an act of grace. You know, I love that song. I can only imagine if you've heard it when he says, the guy says, when I come before you, Jesus, will I stand in awe of you? Be still? Will I sing for you? Will I kneel? You know, I imagine us coming to Jesus. We say we stand before Jesus on the day of judgment because all Christians will be judged. We won't lose our salvation, but we'll be judged as to how we've lived. And imagine us coming before God and saying, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus comes up and he takes you and he lifts you up and says, stand, son of the king, daughter of the king. That is an honor. That is an act of grace. That's what I'm looking forward to. I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, not yeah, you, muppet. What have you been doing? You know, which is what I'm probably like to be. But I want to, that's what I really say. I want to be like that. I want to be a man who brings honor to God. You know, we talked about Matthew chapter 5, didn't we? The Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. Let's just look very, very briefly, quickly at some of these points. A list of cause and effect. Blessed are, remember? Approved by God. Joyful. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Like the the tax collector who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knew he wasn't bringing his own righteousness and his own worth and his own value and gifts to God. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The kingdom of heaven belongs to him. What about those who mourn for their sin? For they'll be comforted by God. They'll be comforted. You know, Romans 8, 12, I think it is where the Holy Spirit, Paul says, the Holy Spirit cries in our hearts, Abba, Father, we come to God and say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. The Holy Spirit says, you're forgiven. You're righteous. You're cleansed. It's justified. Never sinned. You're pure. Stand up in the presence of the King. You're forgiven. What about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied? I tell you, if you go after God, you'll find yourself yearning. I want more of the Spirit. I want more of God's Word. Oh, I just love the truth of this Word. God, you find yourself hungry. I just can't can't watch that stuff anymore. I can't listen to that music anymore. I can't talk that way anymore. I want want to be more like Jesus. You won't be boring. You'll be absolutely very, in the right sense of the word, attractive in that context. What about the pure in heart that they will see God? Not hope to, maybe, hopefully, maybe could do will see God, the pure in heart. God makes us pure. The peacemakers, not the peacekeepers, the ones who, well, I don't like to offend, you know, because I know the Bible's old-fashioned. And No, the peacemakers, those who bring peace, those who arbitrate, those who bring the love of God and fairness and just, to be just like James the Just, they'll be called the sons of God. And that word sons isn't a male context for sons. It actually means the offspring of God. What about those persecuted? For righteousness' sake, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what about those persecuted because of Jesus? He says, "Your reward in heaven is great." Now, who would like to be like some of these people? I'll just give you a little warning, though. Holiness offends, so you need to expect opposition. What you your question this morning? Literally, one sentence to close. Do you need help living like this? I do. I do. God gives grace. Generously, let's ask him for help, amen. Let's just pray for a minute, precious Father. I thank you that we come to our loving Heavenly Father, full of grace and kindness. I thank you, Lord, that we come this morning not to an angry God who wants to condemn us and judge us, but God, a God who wants to forgive us. Lord, your word says, If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, Father, we stand here before you today and we say, Lord, when we sinned and we fouled up, where we've compromised, where we've gone against you, Lord, where we've made ourselves an enemy of God, Lord, we repent of that this morning. We are on the Lord's side. And, Lord, we want to stand righteous before you. We want to be, a, we want to be lifted up and honoured in your presence, God. We, we look forward to it. We yearn for that. And so this morning, I pray for each of us. I pray for our friends that, Lord, that, that if we've let you down, that, Lord, that we would just come to you this morning and repent, that we would know the loving arms of the of the prodigal's father wrapping his arms around us, putting the ring on our finger, putting the shoes on our feet and the robe around us, that, God, that you would just cleanse us this morning, that you'd change our hearts and minds. Lord, the Lord, that you'd sort our minds out, that we can think the right thoughts, that we can think as you think, that we can see things, Lord, as you see them. Father, will you move upon us this morning that we might be a holy people. Lord, that we might really be a people who stand out for you by our purity and righteousness and godliness and grace and love and generosity. But, Lord, that we would be salt to the world, that we would be light to the world, that, God, that we would bring grace where there is criticism and and anarchy and hatred, that, God, that your love would flow through us, that we really would be Christ's ambassador.